Hi folks, and welcome to a special two-part edition of the Plug in America show. Joining me today is a co-founder of Plug in America, Chelsea Sexton. In the first segment, Chelsea reviewed over 20 years in the automotive industry, as well as the movies Who Killed the Electric Car and Revenge of the Electric Car. In this, the second segment, we explore the policy landscape. In particular, we discuss possible regulation changes at the EPA, which may have sweeping impacts on the future deployment of EVs. And at the end, Chelsea gazes into her crystal ball and offers some predictions for the future. But first, please consider signing up for the Plug in America newsletter. It's free, or joining or donating to us by visiting pluginamerica.org today. And we appreciate your kind support. And remember, National Drive Electric Week is September 9th through the 17th. Please visit driveelectricweek.org to register for an event near you or to learn how to host your own National Drive Electric Week in your town. Finally, please be sure to visit pluginamerica.org and click the press room and Plug in America show tabs for the show notes and links to this episode. Hey everybody, and welcome to another Plug in America show. I'm your host, Bob Tregillis. Joining me today is a co-founder and former executive director of Plug in America, Chelsea Sexton. She really needs no introduction for long-term EVers, but for newbies out there, Chelsea was one of the main talking heads in the 2006 movie Who Killed the Electric Car, and she was a consulting producer for Revenge of the Electric Car, and currently she does a lot of consulting in the automotive industry. Welcome to the Plug in America show, Chelsea. Thank you. And what we're doing here, we we uh, did one interview earlier and kind of just looked at the EV landscape uh 10 years plus a year since uh, Who Killed the Electric Car. Of course, Chelsea, we discussed in the last segment that uh, she's been in the automotive industry since the, I guess, about the mid-90s, selling Saturns originally and then going into the GM EV1 program. So we covered just kind of high level what's going on in the EV space at this point in 2017. And what we're going to do now is talk, drill down and talk about uh, real wonky policy stuff. We'll keep it kind of mid-level because it can get really, really wonky. (laughs) I mean, unbelievably wonky. In fact, the California Air Resources Board just issued a a new report on their uh, zero emissions vehicle mandate or recommendations, report, whatever. It's 700 pages, so that's how wonky it can get. Um, So, Chelsea, can you explain to listeners, give us definitions of what the corporate average fuel economy standards are, the CAFE, which started in 1975 and is still uh, very much on the books today, uh, what that is and how that meshes with, well, why don't we just take them one at a time? Okay. Talk about the CAFE standard and what it is in okay. purpose. Yeah, so, so CAFE is one of a few primary regulations around the world that support the idea of more fuel-efficient cars and, and, for our purposes, potentially electrified vehicles. Um, it started a few decades ago. It basically was trying, and during the oil crisis of the 1970s, it, it tries to increase the efficiency of the overall vehicular fleet <laughs> offered by automakers. For our purposes, the, the, the aspect of it and the number that is really focused on at the moment is the idea that under the current program, automakers need to achieve an average fuel economy of all cars they sell. So it separates out large trucks and things like that. It's just passenger cars for this purpose. 
54.5 miles per gallon by 2025. So some will be over, some will be under, but the idea is that across the fleet, you're going to hit nearly 55 miles a gallon by 2025. Um, and it was, it's had different iterations, and the industry has gotten to weigh in, and part of the current controversy is that there was meant to be a midterm review of it. So there's, and this happens on most of these regulations. There's always these sort of midterm reviews and things, which some see as an opportunity to strengthen. Some others always see as an opportunity to chip away, hopefully delay or water it down or whatever. And toward the end of the last administration, the EPA decided that the regulation as it currently stands is fine and it doesn't need a review. And so they chose not to do it. And the, the current lobbying by the, the industry, which started, it's always kind of gone on, but it started again in earnest within 24 hours of, of Trump being elected, is to a, at least revisit that midterm review and hopefully water down those numbers. Right. They've, apparently they've opened up the comment period again to, to look at it. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then are EVs, I mean, it's called the corporate average fuel economy. Are EVs factored into that average, even though some EVs burn a small amount of fuel and others burn no fuel at all? Of course. Yeah. I mean, the whether it's an EV or a plug-in hybrid, any of their MPGE, miles per gallon equivalent numbers, are going to be much higher than your average 25 mile a gallon car and 25 27 is your average car at the moment so any plug-in car and certainly any ev or highly electrified plug-in hybrid um, is going to score much higher than your average gas car and helps offset each other and so to some degree every leaf nissan sells helps offset every tundra or anything else that it sells so there's that aspect of it Electrification isn't specifically required under this regulation, but it is, for the most part, one of the things that automakers assume are, will will not explicitly, but at least implicitly, be required in order to comply. And so if you look at the landscape of regulation, and it's CAFE in the U.S., and it's the, the CARB ZEV program, that, which we'll get to in California, and it's CO2 regulations in Europe. But if you kind of consider the, the few regulations around the world, um, most automakers have somewhere internally a, a PowerPoint deck <laughs> that says, looking at all these regulations, if we're going to comply with them worldwide, we're going to have to sell usually somewhere between 25, 30%, even up to 40% plug-in cars, depending on the mix of EVs and plug-in hybrids, by usually around 2030, 2025, 2030, somewhere in there. So mm -hmm. they've all got their version of the deck, and it all says a significant chunk, at least a fourth of everything we sell within the next decade, has to be electrified to some degree, if not, if not entirely. And that's why it's such a big thing, where a whole industry is trying to transition from internal combustion primarily and diesel which is their bread and butter which is what they know what they know what they're used to what they make their money on to things that are electrified which may seem inevitable and some embrace it as inevitable with more or less willingness it still is different it still requires a transition of human resources of engineering of policy of marketing of all of the different factors that every automaker has right well and then also since 
the Trump administration took office and um, they've opened up the cafe standards again. Uh, I see, you know, I saw a recent article where the CEO of Ford, Mark Fields, uh, told Business Insider that they're still aggressively trying to achieve an average fuel economy for its uh, fleet of the 54.5 miles per gallon by 2025. At the same time, they're arguing you know, this is too much too soon. Uh, right. So, I mean, you know, they look at these regulations, they kind of, they have a love-hate relationship with them because at least the regulation sets a target and that gives stability, predictability, which businesses like. But then, of course, they don't like being forced to do anything because, you know, they complain about the marketability of these cars and all that kind of stuff because they're worried probably about performance issues and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, it is a, a, a little bit of a dual-headed sword, uh, or double-sided. I mean, I think love-hate is probably too generous. I think it's mm, resignation-hate. <laughs> I don't think there's <laughs> okay. any actual love there. <laughs> but, okay, gotcha. But yeah, so on, on one <laughs> hand, especially Ford has been talking about this for a long time, but, but the industry will talk about we love to have consistent regulations, but also incentives for that matter, so that we know what we can count on. For quite some time and, right. and we can plan our product around that and that's completely understandable the reality is also that every new political administration tends to have its technological darling and so there is really no stability beyond four years or so at best and so whether or not that's stable enough <laughs> depends on who you are in your company and your philosophy but there's 20 years of of regulation stability is not going to happen uh, in terms of, of trying to advise toward technological solutions. At the same time, you're absolutely right. Like the, the moment you regulate anything, industry becomes toddlers at bedtime. <laughs> you tell me I have to, I'm not going, damn it. <laughs> and there's lots of foot stomping and complaining involved. Um, so, so there is. And very few companies have sort of said, look, whether it's for this regulation or that one, electrification and efficiency for that matter is is the way of the world going forward, and therefore we're actually going to not worry about one regulation or another. We see this technology is growing for a variety of reasons, and we're going to just choose to lead in it. And, and to some degree, and none of them have done it perfectly, but I think companies like Nissan and even Chevy have taken more of that tact. And to some degree, Volkswagen, for reasons related to diesel but also not, is one of the next ones that will will prove itself or not in that in that regard. And BMW is kind of in the middle where it's dipped toes in the water and the i3 has been okay. It's been kind of a middling success. Um, but there the, the talk of 2020 and all the products coming are the thing that the industry is focused around. At the same time, by 2020, we'll have been at this generation for 10 years and there's a point at which we're going to encounter politicians and others saying to us, yeah, you know what, you guys? We gave you another 10 years and a whole other generation to try mm. to convince the world BBs are a good idea. It's time to move on to something else. And so we have to be a little bit careful about the complacency that comes from this idea that all these models are coming in 2020 or 2025 or whatever. I hope they do. And I think by 2025, this will largely have been decided one way or another. But that the next few years, getting to 2020, are going to be the difficult years. And we have to be really careful not to assume that this is a rolling snowball that can't be stopped and that everything will take care of itself because 
we've seen that movie before, quite, quite frankly. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it's not going to get there all by itself. And it, it can get there. It will get there. A lot of us are stubborn enough to try to make sure of that. But it's not the same as just relaxing and assuming. Right. Well, we had, as I mentioned in the last uh, segment, we had John Volker on a couple of episodes ago. And he was talking about, of course, this is a global night dynamic, as you've briefly touched on, and that places like Asia and uh, certain uh, countries in the European Union, they're really pushing the envelope with EVs much more so than the United States. And that if we lose momentum here in the United States with EVs, that the rest of the world will continue to carry it forward. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to be a little bit of a contrarian on that front. And I hear it a lot. And, and I get I get a fair amount of um, sort of verbal condescension, kind of verbal patting on the head. Don't worry about it, Chelsea. It'll all be fine because China is going to take care of this because they're the fastest growing. And, and that's true. I mean, China is the fastest growing EV region in the world. They sold 350,000 of them last year alone. It is doing the sort of hockey stick moment, relatively speaking, compared to the others, where U.S. and Europe are kind of in tandem in, in terms of overall sales. And we're, we're all around mm, 550, 600,000 units per region, U.S., Europe, China. But the thing that China cannot take care of in the near term is cross-pollination. So the cars that are available in U.S. and Europe tend to mostly cross-pollinate. There's a few things that are only available in one or the other, but brands and stuff tend generally do business on both sides. So the Nissan Leaf is sold worldwide. Even, even a company like Nissan Renault, Renault doesn't do business here, but Nissan and Renault share Intel and now Mitsubishi. <laughs> so things will cross-pollinate within those companies for product in both U.S. and Europe. China at the moment is mostly islanded. So the Chinese product that sells really well there mostly does not reach the rest of the world. BYD exports the large format stuff, but not the smaller things. So, so trucks and buses from BYD will mm -hmm. it, are available elsewhere in the world, but mostly things that are made in China and sold in China stay in China. <laughs> and they're very huge on domestic production, which says that companies like Cadillac and Buick and Tesla and others will sell, set up domestic manufacturing in China, but not for export. So China can go electric all day long, 100% electric, and I hope they do. But that does not necessarily mean that it affects any other region. It might, and, and in the long term, I would imagine it does, and that Chinese product ends up being able to become homologated in other countries and things, meets their cross-testing and stuff, which is not currently the case. But this idea of we can all relax because China is optimistic, I think. Uh, U.S. and Europe have a bit more effect on each other, but at the same time, you know, Norway is a shine. They're, they're the California of, of Europe. They're the mm -hmm. shiny example in terms of EV adoption and penetration mm -hmm. and encouragement. But they can go electric all day long, too, and it's still a relatively small market overall. Companies are not going to build entire car programs that cost a billion dollars or more for Norway. I mean, it's a stretch to even get them to do it for California, <laughs> but between the two... The volumes are at least higher here. And, and yet still, most companies are not going to do a car program for California alone. And that still says our single biggest problem and challenge and thing we need to focus on is getting distribution beyond our borders. And even, even in California, we're focused around the ZEV program and protecting it. But if California wanted to be really bold 
it should do what the, what the federal tax credit should do, which which says it's only available to things that are available nationwide. And California is the only state mm. that would have the sales power to actually do that. So mm. there's a lot of focus around the ZEB program and the waivers and stuff like that, and, and, and we'll get there. But if they wanted, if California wanted to do something really, really bold, then that was not subject to EPA approval, that was not vulnerable to waivers and things like that, it would take the legislative action of saying our state rebate is only available to things that are available nationwide. <laughs> or at a minimum, at least the nine other states that follow our ZEV program. I wonder if they'd run afoul of the Commerce Clause if they did that. But it's a great, great idea. <laughs> anyway. Um, the, the notion of needing to address compliance curves of, the, of geographically restricted product is a huge thing. And it is right. for Europe also. Where it's great if it's available in Norway. But if it's not available outside of Norway, <laughs> you still haven't solved the problem. Right. Let's talk about the tax credit, uh, which is Section 30D of the Internal <laughs> Revenue Code. What are you hearing since plans in Congress and the administration are to completely rewrite the whole tax law and everything? Could this Section 30D be just disappeared? Gutted. <laughs> Gutted? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it could. And I think to some degree, it's more likely even than all the stuff that could happen at the EPA level. And I know that we're all focused on EPA, but the easier thing to do would be to at least get rid of the tax credit, which would have a fairly immediate and outsized impact on sales. If you're trying to kill EVs, you would do that first, mm -hmm. <laughs> rather than worry about EPA or ZEV program or anything else, uh, because that would help kill sales without the auto manufacturers having to be the bad guys. But I think it's, whether it happens or not, we already are in a situation of the few main manufacturers, again, Tesla, Nissan, GM, that will run up, rub up against their current 200,000 unit limit sooner than later. Mm -hmm. They'll do it first. And it'll happen potentially as soon as next year. But then the credit drops 50%. It doesn't go And there's, away. there's a ramp down. But, the, but right. the point is the credit is mostly going to go away for, for many manufacturers no matter what the current administration does. And that still says we are in a vulnerable spot with respect to trying to transition the EV market and deployment from a model of being mostly dependent on external regulations and incentives to being self-sustaining. And we're not there yet. So, that, so EV sales are still entirely dependent on both regulations, CAFE and CARB and CO2 and everything else, and external incentives. And that's not going to change overnight, and it's never going to change if we don't address the compliance cars and the distribution and availability and marketing and the other things. Because EVs are a unique example in the history of the automotive industry, if not most retail products in general, in that it's the only time the industry has only ever required demand to predate and continually exceed supply. Mm -hmm. And what that sounds like is every time a guy like Mark Fields from Ford <laughs> stands up and says, when we see demand for EVs, then we'll build them. When the model for every other car, hybrids, hydrogen, SUV, doesn't matter, is we're going to build something and then convince you that you want it. The automakers are not standing around waiting, saying, when we see demand for hydrogen cars, no, they're saying, we believe this is the future, we're going to demand it, and we're going to make it happen. Mm -hmm. That's never been the case on EVs or plug-in cars in more than 20 years. That's... And it's the only case in which that's true. 
That's an interesting dichotomy there that I never considered. Very interesting. So, okay, well, that covers the IRS thing, and we've covered the CAFE a little bit. Now let's bring in the EPA proper and talk about Section 177, which is this EPA waiver. Um, Of course, the EPA, under the Clean Air Act, right? Is that Section 177 under the Clean Air Act? Yeah, the Clean Air Um, Act allows, Okay, which California, being a large place, was able to get this waiver some time ago where they could set stricter emission standards than what was required at the federal level at the EPA. So California set up their own EPA. And since then, I guess there's 13 states that have followed the California stricter emission standards, more or less. Um, Let's... Talk about that waiver and how how that works. I mean, is that renewed annually or and then can it be can Scott Pruitt say, Oh, okay, waiver no longer exists? How does that work? Yeah, I mean the, the colloquial version of that is that basically again, decades ago, when the Clean Air Act was passed, California has long had not just more population, but a very specific smog and air quality problem beyond mm-hmm most of the rest of the states. And so they got singular permission, they got a waiver to basically establish stricter air standards based on these smog and air quality problems. And it's it's interesting to note now in all the climate change discussion <laughs> that this started not out of CO2 or climate change, but literally particulate matter and smog and asthma and those sorts of issues, kids mm-hmm. not being allowed to play outside. And let, and me, so, let me just add in there, I'm, I was born and raised in the San Fernando Valley, so I do know LA the, yes, well. Yes, you know. <laughs> and that was back in the 60s. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we couldn't see the shopping center that was maybe a football field and a half away at times during the summer. Uh, and it was just horrible. My eyes, you know, I was a little kid, 10, 11 year old kid, my eyes were burning. It was difficult to breathe. It hurt, actually literally hurt to breathe. It was horrible. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm, I'm one of the, I don't know, two or three of us that are natives of the Los Angeles area. I mean, there's, um, I know most of Californians are transplants, but I'm a native. And Mm so I remember all those days too, growing up. And that was the genesis of a lot of that, of the waiver. And even even of the of the ZEV program. So basically California got permission to, to enact stricter standards than the federal ones, and then the rest of the states have the option of going either or. So the other states can't do their own thing, but they can choose to follow the federal guidelines or California's guidelines. And to a large degree, there is a little bit of picking and choosing. So there's around 13, 177 states, but not all of them follow the zero emission program, for example. So there's around 10 states that do that. And it's basically California, Oregon, and the clump of the Northeast states, Vermont, New Hampshire, all those. Uh, and that says, based on the California program, that if you sell a certain number of vehicles here, you must also, therefore, offer a certain number that are roughly zero emission. Different versions of it, the laws changed quite a bit over the last 20 years, but it says at the moment you pretty much have to sell some ratio of zero emission EVs and or hydrogen, but also a large part of the compliance can be done with plug-in hybrids. It used to also include clean gas cars and things like that, which it no longer does. Right. Let's, so, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. 
Well, yeah, I was so just gonna. I didn't want to go into the Zev thing right yet. I wanted to complete, finish off with the EPA waiver. So, sure. what is its status right now? I mean, can it be like? Can Scott Pruitt say, "Up, oh, you're no longer," you know, with the waivers invalid now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, <clears> the waivers are they, they can be canceled or invalidated, and and each new issue requires new waivers. And that's so, annually or. I'm actually not positive if they're okay. all annually or if they're different terms for different ones, but it is an ongoing evaluation. It's not a, hey, you have a waiver once and you now have it for all time. All right. all <laughs> so right. they, they are continually sort of evaluated in various degrees. And there's a lot of speculation around the likelihood of the EPA taking that path of trying to eva- invalidate one or more waivers. Okay, so it's, it's just it's, speculation now, or is there any kind of hard evidence? Of course, for listeners well, who are not paying that, attention, but, or you know, that haven't really paid attention, the EPA, well, Scott Pruitt, who took over the EPA, was a former attorney general in Oklahoma, I believe, mm-hmm. and he yep. sued the EPA numbers of times, especially on these clean air issues, um, and he's also a vocal climate uh, denier. So, you know, that's right. what we're up against. So, yeah. What yeah. I mean, is there more than just speculation on that the waiver might go away or we don't know? Well, there's, yeah. a, there's a fair amount of lobbying <laughs> on yeah. that front, certainly by the automakers or at least some of them. And what's interesting, even on that front, is that years ago, even where they agreed, each of the automakers would get up and, and comment for themselves. Uh, you know, and and it, you'd see it in the in the public comment sections of of car meetings and other meetings where Honda, Toyota, Ford, GM, whatever, they'd each take their three minutes of public comment, and they'd all pretty much say the same thing, but they'd all get up and do it individually. Now, in the last oh six eight years or so, most of the industry has ceded their voice to the alliance groups, primarily the the Association of Autom- of Automobile Manufacturers. And there's U.S. versions and global versions of the alliance groups. But for the most part, those groups speak now for the industry and do the lobbying for the industry. And quietly, individual automakers will support that or not. But it's now mostly spoken with one voice. So even where you have nuances between automakers of one believes more or less in EVs or whatever the issue is, the public voice is still this common denominator Mm -hmm. alliance voice, Mm -hmm. which is useful for them in some ways, I'm sure. I think it's, to some degree it's, it's also a disadvantage for those that don't entirely agree with everything the Alliance believes. They okay. still are sort of painted with that same brush. But part of what that lobbying is, is to eliminate the waivers on some or all of these fronts. Okay. Is the petroleum industry involved with the Alliance as well? Not specifically. But okay. obviously they have their own lobbying interests and in, in industry groups. Do you know if they've been uh, opposing the, or you know, looking to at the waiver as well. To I, I'm sure they have because uh, okay. there's there's other aspects of, especially the California legislation, low carbon fuel standard, and things that are also waiver driven. They're not specifically zero emission. They're not specifically EV, although they're right. supportive of it. But the oil industry and the petroleum industry has been heavily involved in some of those regulations and fighting them on legislative levels as, lo- as, as much as sort of federal lobbying levels. So, yes, the petroleum industry is involved, but slightly differently. 
Okay. Now, let's pick up the Zev mandate. Um, of course, this goes all the way back to early 90s, I believe, when it was adopted. Um, 1990. And, right. Yeah. Okay. And this was covered extensively, or was the, the whole impetus or the whole thing behind uh, who killed the electric car or the main culprit in there that was I guess driver or whatever in there uh so it's talked about extensively so but of course it started out as a fairly simple uh mandate or regulation and now it's it, it's extremely complex uh for a whole variety of reasons yes. <laughs> which we don't need to drill down a lot on that part but, no. but let's talk yeah cuz oh my god but let's just talk kind of generally about the ZEV mandate and where it's at now. Now, as we talked about, the EPA waiver covers 13 states, and then nine of those states have also followed more or less because they it's kind of squishy. That's not strictly California's ZEV, but they've adopted uh, most of the ZEV things. These nine other states. Why don't we? Why don't you kind of? define this and talk about where it's at now and then of course if the waiver goes away does zev go away and what that might right. mean to the industry and so forth yeah i mean so so the zev program zero emission vehicle program actually was instigated by general motors unwittingly <laughs> when they showed the gm impact which became the ev1 at the 1990 auto show and the state basically went oh my God, we've been looking for a solution to our smog and our air quality problems. And now here's a car company that's talking about voluntarily building a zero emissions car. If you guys can do it, then we assume the rest of the industry could also do it if they wanted to. And therefore, we're going to create legislation around it. And it started out, as you said, very simple. 2% of all vehicles sold by 1998 will be a zero emission, 5% by 2001, 10% by 2003. And the moment that it passed, it passed in 1990, wasn't really going to take effect until 1998. So that gave eight years worth of lobbying and concessions and different things. And that's part of what we talked about in the first film. But the idea was that the moment they were legislated to do it, even GM didn't want to anymore. Even though they were moving forward with EV1, they didn't want anyone to say, you have to. And <laughs> the toddler syndrome again, huh? <laughs> it's the to it's toddlers of bedtime. It's yeah, don't think I have to. Which is human nature and understandable, but at the same time sometimes problematic. Um, and it has since been changed and watered down and in some I mean some of it's watered down, some of it's just to accommodate technologies that were not anticipated. I mean back then no one was talking about a thing like a plug in hybrid. So there's a variety of pieces of legislation. Oh, they weren't even talking really about hydrogen seriously when it was first adopted. Not really. But hi yeah, so so both of them were talked about, but not in those really early years. That came mm. toward the late nineties where that was part of the story. And even during E V one we used to talk about well, we made concept E V ones that were hydrogen, that were CNG, that were plug in hybrid. The idea being that these other things would follow. But in that time the industry was collectively successful enough at changing the policy in part to just take it down a lot so they didn't have to build a lot of things for, for quite some time, but also to accommodate, at the time, clean gas cars, but now even plug-in hybrids and, and CNG. And, and hydrogen was always part of it, but it, they've all varied a little bit in the ratios of credits and priorities and whatnot. So at the moment, the current version of the program is really focused around plug-in hybrids and pure electric and hydrogen. 
all in different ratios, um, and and there are a couple of different compliance paths automakers can choose, and some have to do more than others. The smaller manufacturers, the Mitsubishi's and Volvo's of the world, Mazda, get to do less than, say, a GM or a Nissan. So there's those types of, of concessions as well. But fundamentally, the California ZEV program is what drives most electric production. And hydrogen production, for that matter. And at the moment, there is a, a travel provision that allows, even though there's 10 states, for any auto manufacturer that sells a car in any one of those states, they get credit in all 10. And that's going to sunset, hopefully, in next year. or Yeah, next year, 2018. I'm still stuck in 2016 sometimes. So <laughs> that will change. <laughs> Hopefully, but that's also one of the big points of lobbying as well is, is, okay, fine, we accept we're going to have the ZEV program, but if you can just give us a pass of the travel provision, we can still just do California compliance, but not the rest of the states. So that's a, it's a tiny little nuance of the law that has a fairly outsized effect. And, and that's the thing. There's, there's a lot of these sorts of issues where they're not really obvious. They are nuances, and yet they have outsized effects. So we're, we're having to pay attention a lot to the details of the lobbying, not just the overall law and whether it stays. Right. And so ZEV, ZEV is it's separate from the EPA stuff, but it's enabled by the EPA waiver. Correct. Yeah. yeah and okay. there's, there, on, on some level, there is a fairly universal assumption <laughs> that if the waivers were canceled – everybody and their mother would fight it in court. So it's not just CARB. I mean, the Sierra Club and NRDC and all the NGOs, and there's a whole bunch of folks that would try to get involved in that fight. And so the assumption is that even if that were tried, it's not going to be terribly successful. One question that remains are things like injunctions. Mm -hmm. So if it becomes a, a court fight, does the ZEV program get put on hold pending that court fight or only at the end of that court fight, which... Everyone assumes it'll be years long. So mm -hmm. there are still some implications around if they wanted to cancel the waivers that could have a fairly near-term effect pending that years-long court fight. Or it could be business as usual for those years right. until the end of that court fight. It goes both ways. And so no one is really willing to, understandably, relax and assume. <laughs> and at the same time, you're trying to keep people from going too far off the edge of the cliff of the sky is falling because it hasn't yet. And from both sides, there are less impactful ways to accomplish the same thing. So, like I said, the, the easier path from the federal side, if they want to take EVs down, would not be to worry about the EPA waivers. It would be to work on the tax credit and get that done or you know, take it away. And that would affect the market enough that they may not have to worry about the more complicated sort of scorched earth aspect of the waivers. And on California's side, the current path is basically to protect the ZEV program, not accelerate it, not change it, just try to keep it as it is. But if California wanted to be bold, it would work on the CVRP, on our state rebate, on making that nationwide, on, on some of those sorts of things, which are not subject to federal approval. They're a state issue. They're a legislative issue. So they don't have to worry about all these other layers. So there's, there's different aspects each side can tweak depending on what its priority is. Right. That's good. We got a good summary there of the interactions between the various policies and how they move the market forward. So what are we 
I mean, <laughs> I know it's all up in the air and it's a lot of variables and even chaotic situations <laughs> so out do? there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if you put get out your crystal ball, <laughs> Chelsea's crystal ball and, and take <laughs> take a look. Where do you see us in five and 10 years with respect to EVs and, and talk about it globally? Well, as well. I desperately I mean, hope that, we're that, having that. different conversations than this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, I mean, it's been interesting to, to the deja vu moments from the first films and sort of five years ago or 10 years ago are, are um, not surprising, but they're slightly discouraging. I, I think that in five or 10 years, it will be a different conversation. And it will be it will be one way or another. We will we will have either dug in to really work on it and fix it, and we will have, or the complacency will have won. And I really hope it's not the latter. <laughs> but there is no no way yet that says any region just moving forward on its own steam is going to get this done. So you mean within the United States or globally? No, I mean globally. There's I mean. Okay. There's, there's no way that, that Europe or U.S. or China or India or, you know, there's a lot of really fascinating conversations, but there's none of them that are going to move forward on their own power with their own momentum and get it done. And certainly, even, even in their own region, but definitely not enough to affect the other ones. And so that says, there's a lot of good things that are happening. <laughs> and I'm still like the infernal optimist of the bunch, but I'm also realistic. And we still have to pay attention and dig in and take action and call people and show up and weigh in and continue to force this all to move along in one way or another. We also need to be broader in our thinking, not just worry about California ZEV program and EPA and waivers, but also what are the other funny things we could tweak? What if we tried to do something with California's rebate or whatever that's less obvious but could actually have more impact? And at the same time, understand there's some of the stuff that's going to exist at a high level, but we can work on things like, you know, National Drive Electric Week, and it takes a driver to make a driver, and educating local dealers, and trying to match up the drive. There's half a million people that drive plug-in cars in this country, and there's almost no engagement with them, which kills me all the time. But the industry could and should engage, and at the same time, there's opportunity on the advocate side to a, keep doing what we're all doing, but also tweak and accelerate and grow our collective movement. Because as we discussed, this is the one example in all of automotive where it's not going to be industry-led. It's always ever been market, advocate, consumer-led, which is unfortunate in some ways, but also an opportunity and also a responsibility that we just, we have to keep at it. So we can't put down the pitchforks or torches yet, huh? <laughs> No, but it also requires carrots. <laughs> so right. okay. It's not only about sticks. <laughs> okay. Um, and then also you ma mentioned uh, National Drive Electric Week, which I guess I should start promoing that, uh, which will be September 9th through the 17th this year in probably well over 200 cities around the nation and, well, around the world, actually. We have uh, ones in foreign locations as well. You can find out more about National Drive Electric Week, uh, which is uh, presented by Plug in America, the Sierra Club, and the Electric Auto Association by going to driveelectricweek.org. That's driveelectricweek.org. We'll get this into the show notes. So... 
I won't put you totally on the spot, but I'll, I do want a prediction. I would like to get a prediction out of you. Best case scenario, worst case scenario. By 2030, what do you think the percentage of uh, plug-in electric vehicles will be on America's roads? Hmm. By 2030, um, I think... Best case, barring, worst case. <laughs> barring something unforeseen, just based on everything we know so far, I'm, I, my best case is maybe 15%. Uh, worst case is close to zero. I mean, I, I don't take it as a foregone conclusion yet. This is happening. Hydrogen? Um, I, well, yeah, best case. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know what? Oh, oh. Well, pass- passenger vehicles. Um, I, I, I don't see hydrogen gaining any traction in passenger vehicles. Right. I think there is maybe, at least I'm not willing to dismiss that it could potentially have some uses in buses in large format yeah. and certainly for fleets where you can do one station, a lot of, a lot of vehicles. But yeah, I, I just, I still don't see hydrogen cast chat, catching on for passenger vehicles for completely different reasons than most people. I just, mm-hmm. I don't see the market, forget the efficiency and the cost and everything else. I just don't see the market for it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've always thought that hydrogen would be best applied to the heavy, over the road type. Uh, yeah, at best. Type yeah. yeah. Okay, well, cool. Well, thank you so very much for your time, Chelsea, and getting us caught up. I know this was kind of a, well, we broke this episode into, or this episode into two segments because we were running quite long, but. Uh, I know, I ramble way too much. <laughs> no, it's, we appreciate that because that's, I, that's how I learn. <laughs> You're so ingrained in it and been in it, you know, plus the historical perspective. Uh, anyway, so thank you so much, Chelsea. Absolutely. Thank you. This has been another edition of the Plug in America show. Thanks so much for listening. And please help us get the word out about Plug in America and EVs by pointing your friends and family to the Plug in America website at pluginamerica.org. There you'll find a wealth of information about EVs, our plug-in vehicle tracker that tells you what EVs are available, what's coming and when, a blog, information about EV chargers and public charging, multimedia content, promotional materials, and much more. And, of course, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for us there. If you'd like to find out more about me, my name is Bob Tregillis, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter as well. And please remember, Plug in America is a non-profit electric vehicle advocacy group, and our work is supported by your generous donations. Please consider donating by visiting pluginamerica.org today, and we appreciate your kind support. Thanks to Anglegord, whose music was used here by permission. And until next time, remember, at Plug in America, we drive electric, and you can too.